how do you create good people in a society? And I think sports is a common denominator that makes people, particularly kids from different backgrounds, different economic strata, come together and learn about each other, learn to like each other, and it breaks down barriers and it breaks down walls. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset Show. This is a podcast about the financial, money, and recreational mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset Show and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guests are John Ledecky, co-owner of the New York Islanders, and Len Potter, part of the ownership group for the Seattle Kraken. John and Len have known each other for over 30 years and now are in the unique position of owning franchises that are part of the National Hockey League. Len and his team at the Kraken are in the process of putting together a team that will experience great success in the 2021-2022 season, while John and the New York Islanders are looking to return a rich tradition of winning to their franchise. Both are in the process of constructing new arenas and are passionate about the game of hockey and their local communities. Their respective franchises and arenas are so much more than just that. They're going to be pillars for the community. Listen in as Len and John share their passion for the game of hockey, the Peconic Hockey Foundation, their fans, and their communities. Well, everybody, Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being with two gentlemen from the hockey world. And as you know, I'm a huge hockey fan. I have John Ledecky, co-owner of the New York Islanders, and Len Potter, who's part of the ownership group for the Seattle Kraken, the new NHL franchise coming to the league next season. Thanks for joining us today, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Larry. Awesome. John, can you tell us, since I see you first, can you tell us, I want each of you to give our listeners an idea about what your path was to becoming an owner of an NHL franchise? Well, I've been very blessed in life and had an opportunity to become an entrepreneur. And I was trying to take a company public. And I met this guy named Len Potter, who worked at a firm called Morgan Lewis and Bacchus. And I was very excited because Out of the 42 investment banks I talked with, one finally said, they'll take me public. And I told Len very excitedly, and there was this long pause from Len, and he said, John, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but that investment bank is going out of business. That's the reason why they'll even consider taking you public. And so long story short, I was able to, thanks to Len, get my company public and become very successful and was able to become part of the National Hockey League in the late 90s with Ted Leonsis. I was his partner in the Washington Capitals. And then here I am today as an owner of the New York Islanders. So really excited to be part of the Islanders. I have a great roommate from college, Scott Malkin, who's my co-owner. And we really are enjoying being part of the community. Awesome. And what about you, Len? What was your path here? Mine was a little bit different. So I run a family investment office for a guy named David Bonderman. And David has got a passion for sports and has long wanted to be more significant owner of a team and the opportunity came for him to buy a hockey team. And he called me and he said, Len, you run the office. This is what we're going to do. Go make it happen. So I spent the better part of the last three years working towards this goal that having a new franchise in Seattle, we're going to launch in the upcoming 2021 season and we'll get to play the Islanders a couple of times a year if, if all is good. Yeah, I'm excited to watch that and I'm excited to see that for sure. Now, Len, was there something specific about the sport of hockey that drew you towards this sport versus others? I mean, there are obviously other franchises, other sports that you and the family office could have been involved with, right? What was the draw to hockey? The sport is a tremendous sport, right? And unless you have spent time at a hockey game, it's hard to imagine how fast and how exciting the game can be. What I think was the bigger draw for David, though, was the opportunity to bring franchise to a new city, Seattle, which is a tremendous, dynamic, young, sports-hungry city that didn't have a winter sports team. They lost the NHL in 1918, and they lost the Sonics when they moved to Oklahoma City. And ever since then, there's been a big void in the city. And David has loved Seattle. He went to college there. And so I think he saw an opportunity to revitalize a big part of the city that in the old key arena that had been run down and to, and to bring a hockey team to a great city. 
Awesome. John, you've been involved with hockey before through your association with the Washington Capitals. So I know that your desire and interest in hockey predates your involvement with the Islanders. What was your draw to hockey initially? Well, I think in general, just being able to own a sports team is such an incredible opportunity to do community service. We know that we're stewards of a great franchise, and that franchise has so much ability to influence the way a community operates. So you have a chance to go and and do things in the community with healthcare providers, with all the different things that we're dealing with, with the terrible pandemic, to be able to tell the community that the nurses are our heroes and give them hero jerseys, a chance to really make a difference throughout the community. And I think that's what sports is all about. It's one of the few venues left where everybody can come together and enjoy something with each other. And I think so many people are looking forward to when this pandemic ends and we're able to commune again and root for a team in a full arena. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think they did a great job as a fan. I think the bubble and what they did last season was unbelievable, how they were able to resume and at least have the playoffs. And I know your team did really, really well. And it was exciting hockey. And this year, I feel like they're making the best of an interesting situation, to say the least. So it's been exciting. And at least they kept the hockey around, which is good. And like you, I'm looking forward to a full season again, hopefully in the coming 21-22 season. Hopefully we'll be back to normal and we'll have a new team in there, the Seattle Kraken. So How do you think, John, you're in this rebuilding phase of the Islanders franchise, which has been going really well, and now bringing the Kraken to the NHL? How do you think the history and what's going on with both of your teams will help expand the game of hockey and grow the game? Well, I think it's fantastic what Len is doing in Seattle. Again, when you think about a city and what it means to a city to have a sports team, to have someone who's philanthropic as Len and his partners in that city trying to make a community come alive over and over again, 41 times a year. So for the league, having the Kraken enter is incredibly exciting for the sport because it expands the sport to a vibrant market, a really, really terrific sports town. And what they're doing with the key arena, the sustainability, the fact that the arena has a special name that connotes something that's so important, the climate issues that face our country. I don't think the NHL could have been prouder to admit a partner than Lens Group. What they're doing is so thoughtful It's just so on point, and it makes us proud to have them as part of the NHL. The way they picked the name, and Len, I think the way you picked the name, the Kraken, was great, too. You took the community's input, and and you really focused on the fans. The fact, Larry, that they sold out so quickly, I think, Len, you sold out in one day or something, just shows the uh, remarkable appetite for sports in the greater Northwest. Yeah. How do you think that's going to overall impact the overall game of hockey? Well, it's going to increase the number of eyeballs in the game. And I think Seattle is one of the most vibrant, growing tech centers in the world. To have all of a sudden millions of new fans who are going to understand the sport of hockey is such a great thing. The Hockey in person is an incredibly exciting game. But hockey technology-wise is benefiting from the great expansion of streaming and everything else that's going on in the telecom world. So I think having partners like Len has, I mean, he has incredible partners from Amazon and other tech giants up there thinking about the game of hockey, thinking about how to present the game of hockey, thinking about how to make the game more fan accessible and fan friendly to expand the TAM, if you will, the addressable market of hockey is terrific. Awesome. What about you, Len? What do you think is going to be the overarching impact to the sport? Well, I think the more cities that we're in that are excited by the game, the better it is for the sport, right? I mean, we saw the NFL deal get announced this week, the media deal, and it was huge. At the same time, the NHL announced their media deal, and it'll be multiples of what the old deal is, but there's still a long way to go. And I think that one of the great things about hockey is the constant excitement of the game. I mean, you can watch an NFL game. And no disrespect to the NFL, but if you just narrow it down to the plays, you can watch an NFL game in probably 20 minutes. A hockey game is 60 minutes of nonstop end-to-end action that's broken up a few times for timeouts and commercials. But other than that, it's constantly moving. And I think the biggest thing that we're trying to do in Seattle is we know that we have to bring the game to the community. We know that hardcore hockey fans will come to the game. We know that Hardcore sports fans will dial in. John's right. We sold out. We needed 10,000 tickets before the NHL would give us a franchise. And I think we did that in 12 minutes. 
(laughs) But we did sell out and we have a waiting list of tens of thousands of people who want to buy tickets to the game. And that's going to give us a little bit of runway to put a great team on the ice. But the truth of the matter is that we still feel like we have to bring the game to the city. There were no sheets of ice in the city of Seattle. So we are building a three rink training center in the city of Seattle where it will be open for learn to skate programs, for youth hockey leagues, for adult hockey leagues. And our view is that the more fans that see and understand the game, the more people will come to our game. It's sort of a win-win for everybody. By bringing them to the game, they'll come to our games. I think, Glenn, you're so right about that. And the comment he made about the NFL, it's actually only 13 minutes of actual action in an NFL game, and yet they stretch it over three hours. The thing about hockey that people don't appreciate, it's the only sport, the only major sport, where players substitute in without being announced. You're substituting on the fly. Every 30 to 45 seconds, the players are changing without any announcement, unlike the NFL, Major League Baseball, where there's very much a substitution rule. Here, the players are on the fly. And I think that excitement of that continuous action really does make a difference. And it's a millennial sport. It's a sport for the 21st century. So it's very exciting. And I think, again, Bringing the Seattle market to the NHL was a stroke of genius by Commissioner Bettman. It was probably the best market that was available. Yeah, and I think it's going to be important. And as you said, because it's such a quick game and fast paced, that's why there's such an education factor that if you know nothing about the sport, it takes a little while for you to kind of get acclimated and understand what's going on because it's such a high speed and high paced sport, which is a great thing. And I'm sure that Seattle is going to have a huge impact on the league. I was telling Len, we spoke once before when I was in Vegas a couple of years ago, when they first entered the league, I was just walking around that town amazed by how many people who knew nothing about hockey were so supportive of the team and everything that was going on there. It was really, really fantastic. Now, John, you bring up a great point. You talk about philanthropy. You talk about lens philanthropy. But the reality is both of you guys are really philanthropic folks, as you know. And as our listeners know, I sit on the board for the Peconic Hockey Foundation. And it's an organization that both of you have been huge, tremendous supporters of since day one. And our organization is basically on a quest to bring a covered rink to the east end of Long Island, because right now the only rink really is uh, at the Hop Hog line. And beyond that, there is not a covered rink beyond that on the east end of Long Island. And why is your support of Peconic and the support of building this rink and important to you in growing the game as well? Well, growing the game is super important to us on Long Island, but I think it's more more importantly, the things you just mentioned, Larry, are so true. I listen to fathers and sons and daughters and moms talk about the fact that they're getting in the car and driving as much as an hour and a half so their kids can play hockey. And the East End deserves more facilities. The East End is extremely affluent in most places, but there are people who are living year-round putting their kids in school, and they really need the facilities. And so it's great for the sport of hockey, but more so to me is the need for recreation, the need to funnel kids and focus kids on positive outcomes. And hockey, to me, teaches STEM skills. I mean, you think about when you shoot a puck and it rebounds off a board, you're teaching a kid physics, scorekeeping, math. There's so many different things that a sport can help a child learns. So it's great to lace them up and go play. But if you can't lace them up and go play, how do you learn about the sport? And how do you become a participant in the sport? So we definitely need that facility in the East End. We definitely are supporting it. And I'm personally supporting it because I believe in it. And I think about the way that my niece, Katie Ledecky, was thrown into a pool when she was six years old, a community pool by her parents, and she started to swim and she loved it. She became an Olympic champion. So we don't know when the next Pat LaFontaine or the next Mike Bossy is lurking on Long Island and they never get a chance to play. We'll never know. So we need to provide more facilities for kids. Yeah, I agree. And Len, I mean, it's interesting that you're a huge supporter of it as well. Your team's across the country, but you're also a supporter of the rink. So what's your driver there as far as supporting their efforts or our efforts? There's a bunch of things there, but I think the key is for me, it's about how do you create good people in a society? And I think sports is a common denominator that makes People, particularly kids from different backgrounds, different economic strata, come together and learn about each other, learn to like each other, and it breaks down barriers and it breaks down walls. Hockey is an expensive sport. And so in many places, it's supported through, you know, hand-me-downs and things like that. But in other places, there is a community effort to bring kids to that sport. 
I'm sure John will attest to this as well. And Larry, you, you love hockey, so you, you know this is true. There's very few jerks in the game of hockey, right? Kids. It's, it's funny that you said that because that was one of the things I was going to say next. I've met a lot of athletes in different sports and hockey, by all means, the players and the people involved with the sport tend to be different. You get up at five in the morning for ice time. You live when you're a junior player with another family. You understand that the team is bigger than any one player and it teaches you a little bit of a different mindset. And so, but it's not just about, this rink is not just about hockey. It's about putting people on the ice, giving them something to do, bringing a community together. It's a place to gather. And then yes, all of the hockey stuff is there too. But the ultimate thing here is that you're doing something for kids. You're providing an outlet for kids, an activity for kids, for adults, for people to come together. And I'm excited about that as much as I am for building future fans for John's team. So he's not going to have any problems selling out, right? He's building this brand new, beautiful arena, this state of the art, right? And he's finally bringing the fans back from Brooklyn and from the old Nassau Coliseum, putting them in a world-class building right there in in UBS Arena. And it's going to be spectacular. But again, those kids that start playing will become fans of the Islanders, but that makes them fans of the sport. And that benefits everybody across the country. The thing that people don't realize about sports ownership is you're part of a collective, right? So Len is one of 32 teams in the NHL. He owns 100 divided by 32 of the NHL. And so we're all about 3% owners of a great league and we work together and we support one another and we can be rivals on the ice, but we're partners off the ice. And that's the most important thing is that we want to grow the sport of hockey. We think it is the greatest sport, fastest sport, a sport full of great kids and great athletes. So We're rooting for each other. I can't wait to be in Len's building. Can't wait to come to my building. It's (laughs) going to be a lot of fun to be able to have these two great new buildings in the NHL. It spotlights the league, which is fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say also, Len and John, I was having a conversation with another person who worked for an NHL team, and he had an interesting slant, which I had never thought about before with regard to hockey players. And he showed me that it's one of the few sports where as a youth player and you're growing up through the ranks where you get to the rink early, usually a couple hours before the game, and you're in a locker room spending time with your teammates and you're spending time with them in that same locker room after the game. And if you think about baseball and football and soccer when you're a youth player, most of the times you show up at the field, you strap on the gear and you go out there. There's not that extra time, effort and energy sitting and building that camaraderie with people in the locker room, which also generates a whole different experience for the player as well. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. So you guys alluded to this. You guys are both in the process of building brand new arenas, right? And today, I think it's a fair estimate that everything is geared towards fan experience right? You want to get the fans there. You want them to stay there. You want them coming back and you want them having an awesome time, hopefully posting on social media, talking about it, etc. What are your respective arenas? And, and we'll start with you, Len, going to have to serve their fan base in order to provide the most fantastic experience possible. You're right. We're building a brand new arena. What a lot of people don't realize is we're building a brand new arena under an old roof, which is a right. landmark roof from the 1960s World Fair that happened in Seattle, the old Key Arena. And the way to do that is by digging down underneath. And we did that, supported this 44 million pound roof for months while we excavated underneath. It was an engineering exercise that cost millions of dollars, but the result is going to be spectacular. And so we are building what will be a very tight arena. It's got a smaller footprint than most arenas, and you will feel like you're right on top of the action no matter where you're sitting in the arena. We've got an innovative new scoreboard design, which has never been done before, where rather than hanging a big scoreboard in the middle, we've actually got two triangle-shaped scoreboards at each end of the arena. And what that allows you to do is literally almost see and reach out and touch the people on the other side of the arena from you. And it also keeps your sight lines focused end-to-end, which is where a lot of the action is happening during the game. So we're doing things like that. We're building great clubs in the arena that most of the people will have the ability to access. We're figuring out as best we can. And I know John's doing the same stuff. How do you get people off of lines in their seats during the game? Because you want that energy in the bowl during the game. But maybe the most interesting thing about our arena is the location of the arena, which is literally in a park in the middle of Seattle where the community has grown up around it. 
And so many people will be able to walk to the game. And if you can picture walking to the game through a park, through a winter carnival-like atmosphere with a beer garden, with music playing, and then you get into the arena and it just continues, right? And so not every fan that comes is going to be a great super hockey fan, but every fan that comes needs to have a good time. And I think having great game ops and a great game experience and around the entire thing, how do you get in and out of the arena? We're giving all that tons of thought so that people enjoy the entire experience from start to finish. Yeah, I mean, you're describing is that their experience doesn't start at the game. It starts with the minute they pull into the parking lot and it starts. Or when they take the monorail from downtown, right? There's a monorail that's literally a one minute ride to the arena. And we actually thought, should we put a bar car in there for the one minute (laughs) ride? But (laughs) the goal is to bring the energy early and have it be there for the entire game. So awesome. What are you guys doing, John? Well, I think the first thing that Len points out, which is so important, is we're competing with the Barker Lounger. We're competing with the comfy sofa and the 100 inch television. So we have to give a fan and a family the reason to get into their cars or jump on the Long Island Railroad and come to the arena. So it's got to be a world class experience. And to Len's point, the minute you land at the arena, the experience begins. So for us, what we decided to do, which is in line with what Len's talking about, the intimacy of the bowl, everybody that we talked to, and we talked to thousands of fans. I walked around the arena every night for the 40 games before we started the project and said, look, what do you want in a new arena? I wanted to know what the fans wanted. And what they wanted was the intimacy of the Nassau Coliseum, that sense that you're right on the ice, the intimacy that Alex Ovechkin says makes for the best arena in the National Hockey League. He said, John, I sat next to him at one of uh, Ted's kids' weddings, and he said, I won't imitate his Russian accent, but he said, you you own Islanders. I go, yeah. He goes, best arena in hockey. I said, why? He said, only arena where I can hear the fans curse at me in Russian, and I actually hear it right on the ice. So <laughs> he loved the fact the fans were that close. So we're taking the intimacy of the bowl, the intimacy of the Nassau Coliseum, and we're planting it into this beautiful new arena. And what will be gone are the 20-minute waits for using the men's room or the women's room in between periods. What will be gone are the cold hot dogs and the warm beer. It'll be state-of-the-art in every respect. We're going to have contactless concessions in this post-pandemic environment. Both Len and I have been able to design arenas that take advantage on an original basis of all the sanitization things that are so important in the post-pandemic world. We're going to have eight bars that are situated throughout the arena. And the thing that annoys me is you go get a beer or you go get a hot dog and you miss the one goal that makes a difference in the game. So our bars and facilities will be visible. You'll be able to see the ice. So you can be standing there in line trying to pick up your stuff, but you're not going to miss the action. Again, game presentation that Len talked about. I love his concept of the two scoreboards. It is about making sure that the experience is there for the casual fan as well as for the the fan who's super into the team. But more importantly, both of our buildings are being built for music as well, right? So we say built for hockey, made for music. The acoustics are going to be fantastic for our building. We're going to have 150 nights of musical entertainment. Remember, the last two years, no one in the musical business has been able to tour. So the backlog of touring is going to mean that every major act is going to Seattle. Every major act is coming to Belmont Arena. And so we're going to benefit from that. And our fans are going to benefit from that as well. And so that, to me, is the the most important elements of building a new building is beautiful fan experience, most comfortable seats, the widest seats, the best of everything. But making sure that you have a facility that can absorb hockey on the one hand and great music on the other hand. Yeah, I think John's right. The fan experience is going to be so huge here. And it's been a focus when you're designing a new building, you can design that effectively into the building. And as John talked about before, for example, our building is the Climate Pledge Arena. It is a zero carbon footprint building. No one would have thought to do that even five years ago. But with the support of Amazon and John and I, we share architects and and partners in our building in the Oakview Group. We're building these buildings like no one's ever imagined they could be built before. And they're both fan first buildings. Right. So I'm sure you guys have both done tours of your respective buildings. So Len, what's the favorite part? If you had to say, hey, this is my favorite part of the new building, what would that be for you? My favorite part of the building in Seattle, and to be fair, I have not been there in a year. So it's been mostly pictures, and that's a pandemic restriction. I really haven't been able to get out there. But the fact that it sits so beautifully in the park and that the light comes in, there's actually glass that comes into the bowl, and we'll have to block that light for certain daytime events, and the tightness of it. It's really spectacular to look at. 
And from the outside, it just looks like the 1960s World's Fair Key Arena with this square slanted, odd shaped roof that's been landmarked. And that's beautiful in its own right. But you'd never imagine that underneath it is this 800,000 square foot arena that holds however many people, 17-6, I think, for hockey. So Yeah, it sounds like the best of the old and the best of the new combined into one facility, really which is fantastic. And John, what's your most exciting feature in in your new building? I think the fact that we left to lend this incredible design, the 1960s things, what we wanted to do is really think about New York and try to salute New York, which is a city that I think will lead us out of this national pandemic that we've had and help rehabilitate the country's energy. I think we are set for the roaring 20s once again. When you think about the Spanish flu 100 years ago that led to the roaring 20s, I think people want entertainment. The fact that we sold out on our suites as quickly as we did in our premium seats tells me that there is real pent-up demand for people for to seek entertainment out. So for me, it's the homage to New York. The fact that the entrance to this arena is going to remind you of the magnificence of Grand Central Station's terminal, that main entrance to that great building. The fact that we thought about the brick on the outside matching up with the old brick at Madison Square Garden when it was a brick-based building back before the new garden was built. The fact that we've taken things like, oh, the best bar in New York at the St. Regis and used that as an inspiration for our suites. The fact that we've taken other aspects of New York and tried to integrate it into this building so that people from around the metropolitan area coming will say, wow, this is my home. I got to get a suite there. Do you have any left? <laughs> That's funny. I had one for Larry and I have one for you. So hopefully I can, hopefully I can sell two on this call. John hasn't been in our building and I haven't been in his building, but I've driven past it and it is beautiful on the outside. I'm excited to get in there. Yeah, it's a traditional building, but that's what's great about the partnerships that we have. And we really are, you know, we've known each other now for over 30 years and we love each other. Our families love each other as well. I think that we're so excited for each other because our buildings are so different, but they're the same. They're different in terms of the architectural style and the fact that Len has incorporated things from Seattle's history. We've incorporated things from from New York's history is is a commonality. The intimacy that Len talks about is what Belmont's all about. And I think as we see new arenas built around the country, that word intimacy is the most important thing because again, you have to provide this experience that makes somebody say, I want to go there again. I want to go see the Springsteen concert on a Tuesday and I want to go see the Islanders play on a Thursday. I want to keep coming back to this building because it feels like home. At the end of the day, you have to provide that equivalent experience. Exciting, but you have to have a person feel comfortable, right? And in the new world order, comfort also equals sanitization. We've been really lucky, if there is such a thing as luck, that this pandemic hit when it did because it's now retrofitting in every arena are these things that we're able to with lens building in our building, put in a standard operating procedure to have the best air quality, the best HVAC, the best HEPA filters, contactless bathrooms where you never will touch anything in the bathroom, which is exceptional. But this is what technology in the 21st century has enabled us to do. Were these changes that you had, were these implementations that you already had planned for your respective buildings? Or because of the pandemic, did you end up having to pivot with some of these things and make changes along the way? As I mentioned, we both have the same partner in the building, which is uh, Tim Lewicki in the Oakview Group. And Tim also runs an organization called the Arena Alliance, and he's been in this business for a long time. And he has gotten feedback from lots of different people over the years on how do you deal with things like security? How do you deal with traffic in the arena so that you don't get pinch points in traffic? And so all those things were built in initially. I think the pandemic took it to another level. And because we were still in the planning stages or early construction phases, we were both able to implement some of these higher level, effectively security things or things that keep patrons safe. In this case, it was largely air conditioning and air quality and things like that. But every arena around the country is wrestling with this and is going to invest the money to do this. It's important for all of them. It just was a little bit different for us because it was the beginning, but there was no better partner than Tim in Oakview on what needed to be done, how to get it done. I think that's right. And I think the fact is that technology is evolving so quickly. Mobile ordering used to be something that was, wow, that's really cool. Now it's sort of standard, right? 
not touching anything in the bathroom will become standard for the rest of our lives. Cashless, not being able to have to touch money, mobile ticketing, so you're not touching things. I think this emphasis on touch-free experience is super important. And then, of course, this company, which has just gone public, that's developing a program to allow people just to keep walking rather than lining up. It's a technology that continues to be refined where it can figure out whether someone has a weapon or whether someone has a bomb or some other destructive element for an arena. But queuing up, to me, I think even post-pandemic, people are not going to want to be huddled together queuing up this surge of people who come in at the last minute. I know that because of the Oakview connection, we're all working on how do we spread out the entry point, right? If we don't have this technology where you just keep walking through and we're still using magnetometers, how do you spread it out? Well, there's a number of things you can do incentive-wise, right? It can be something as simple as beer is 25% less if you come in before six o'clock or four hot dogs for a family if you come in at 5.30 or a dollar each. There's ways to change behavior that will make it painless, make those pain points go away. And I think all of us as arena operators have to start thinking about that because I'm not coming back if I have to wait an hour and a half in line. I was thinking about this. I'm sure Len will be the same way, but on opening night, I don't want to be in the owner's suite. I want to be out there in the parking lot. I want to understand what's going on with the parking. I then want to go where the fans are entering. And I always think I get invited by wonderful owners all over the country. And I wonder as I go through the VIP line and I see the lines of 45 minutes to an hour, I wonder if those owners really know that their fans are waiting that long online. So I've got to be out there. I know Len will be out there as well, making sure that what we're promising actually gets delivered. If I see a long line, I'm going to be pissed because I'm going to look at that line as a fan and say, I'm not coming back. And we need our fans to come back. So the new owners, the new breed of ownership gets out of the suite and actually gets into it. I remember Tim Laiwicki, who we've talked about, who runs Oakview Group, talking about literally he had to go and wipe down the suites on opening night in one of his buildings because they were running that close to opening night. He was literally in a uniform instead of being in a suit and tie. He was literally using Windex to get the place ready for opening. And I think that's what an owner has to be. He has to understand that the fans are the consumers. They're his clients. and We have to make the client happy. That's great. I think that's a great point. We want to make sure that it's a great experience, but at the same time, in this day and age, safety and security are two really paramount things because it's one thing to have a great experience, but if you don't feel safe and you don't feel secure, again, you're not going to come back. So we'll call it the hat trick. You want all three of those to drive your fans and keep them coming back. Yeah. So, But you mentioned something that's really important. I guess both of our buildings have done this just so fans can understand. So the HVAC systems we're putting in can bring 100% fresh air into the arena when needed. And our plan is to have four to six total air changes per hour for air circulation inside the bowl. And then that's great. But what about the suites and the clubs and everything else? So we've had separate filtration systems put into place in those areas so that the private rooms and the private clubs don't have that stuffiness to them as you often see in arenas, right? So that's added millions and millions of dollars of cost but it's going to give us such a sense of safety and security. And the fans will be so much happier with feeling that because we're all going to be like looking over our shoulders for a while, but we want fans to return to venues and feel safe about it. I agree. And it's important. It's important. And I appreciate you and I appreciate both of you and your organizations and who you're working with to be so thoughtful and mindful of this, to look out for the fans and their safeties. And ultimately this helps the players too, keeps them healthier and keeps them safer as well. So that's great. Len, obviously you're coming up, you're going to have the draft, you have a big season coming up. What's the next step for your organization? So after we finish the arena, we've got to finish the arena, but I think from a hockey ops perspective, we've got a world-class team. Ron Francis, one of the legends in the NHL, also happens to be one of the nicest, one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, is responsible for our hockey ops, and he has lived, slept, breathed, hockey ops and scouting and analytics for the last year. We've got Alex Mandricki, one of the most important women in the NHL who runs our analytics program, and Ricky Olchik, assistant GM. We've got an entire team of people who are focused on, as Ron says, spending a quarter billion dollars in a couple of days. And that's really what it amounts to is <laughs> we get to go and John can protect however many players the Islanders can protect. Everyone gets that same option and we've got to go through. We get one player from each team and then we have the regular draft two days later. And right. we've got to have all of that information ready to go. And so 
It's every day scouting European leagues, scouting amateur leagues, scouting college, scouting the junior leagues. It's scouting the other teams and trying to build this database of information that we didn't start with. We didn't inherit anything. And then you put together what's happened in hockey this year is the analytics that used to be maybe a hundred points of analysis a game, a hundred stats a game is now millions because of all the puck tracking technology and the player tracking technology that's been implemented this year. There's so much information and it all needs to get filtered down to one period where all of the teams hand in their list to the NHL. And I think it's 12 or 24 hours later, they hand those lists to us and then we hand them a list back. That says, okay, here's the expansion draft. Here's who we're taking from each team. And then two days later is the minor league draft in the war room. And everybody knows how that works. And you're on the clock. And then it's time to start. So I think that is a huge, huge few days for us and something that's going to be really exciting. Do you think you're in your team? And I'm going to ask John the same question just from a different aspect. But do you think that you and your team, Ron Francis and everybody else, is at an advantage since they've done this expansion draft only a couple of years ago with Vegas? Do you think that poses an advantage for you guys? Oh, no. No. That is screwed because Vegas really took advantage of the fact that it was the first time. And I can remember trying to keep a player and we're begging them to take two first round draft picks and a, and a guy that we didn't want in the bag of hockey pucks. I mean, the teams were throwing things at Vegas just because they wanted to protect uh, their players. You know, you only get to protect in total, not to get too much in the weeds, about 10 players out of 23. And that's one goalie and you can protect extra defensemen and blah, blah, blah. I think that the lessons learned from Vegas are going to impact Seattle. And, and that's why when Len talks about the analytics and the firepower of Ron Francis, that's the determinant for him because Vegas waltzed in, did their thing, and all of a sudden made the Stanley Cup finals. The one thing you can't underestimate, though, for the Kraken is two things. One, the power of being in a new building is fantastic. Two, the fan base will be rabid as it was in Vegas. But three, every player taken has a chip on their shoulder. Every player that Vegas took had a chip on their shoulder saying, my old team didn't want me. I'm going to show them. Right, Lynn? And so you're going to get the benefit of that, of those folks in that locker room having the chip on their shoulder saying, I'm going to prove that my team shouldn't have given me up. And that was the attitude in Vegas. And I think that's going to be the attitude of the Kraken as well. Well, yeah. Do you feel like you're at an advantage, John, from an ownership being through that and losing players? Do you feel like you've learned a lot through that whole process that's going to help you? The league learned a lot, but I do say the following. We asked Len and his partners to pay $650 million to join the NHL and then spend another billion five on an arena. They deserve to have good players, right? right? Back when the Islanders first started in 1972, I think we had 18 points the first season, right? We were the worst team in the league because the draft wasn't set up the way it is set up today. I want the Kraken to be in the playoffs. That's great. That shows that the league has balance and that an expansion team can come into the league and immediately perform. And by the way, the fans want to see it as well. The Seattle fans don't want to be rooting. It's not like the lovable Mets. We all grew up in New York, right? We loved the Mets in the 60s, but we got really excited in 69 when they won the World Series. So the toleration for mediocre performance in sports today with social and digital media is zero. So I want the Kraken, and the Kraken will have great players because the NHL is very deep in talent. And when you can only protect eight or nine folks, you're going to get a good player from each team. Sure. What do you see as the next step for your organization, John? Well, I think on the ice, we're very well positioned. We have two of the very best at their respective positions leading us. I mean, Lou Lamorello and Barry Trotz. What can I say about Lou? (laughs) He's a Hall of Famer. He's won three Stanley Cups in more than 1,300 games. And we're very fortunate that Barry became a free agent right after winning a Stanley Cup with the Washington Capitals. So the great thing about Lou and Barry is they hold everyone accountable and to the highest standard. They've built an incredibly strong culture. They've built a culture where character is paramount. Thomas Hickey hadn't played in a year and a half. Our defenseman, who had been on the team for many years, was sent to Bridgeport. He never complained. He never had any problems. He did his job. He got his chance the other night for the first time in a year and a half, and he had two assists. And that's what it is. The players get it. They sacrifice for one another. They realize they're on a team. They feel that there's a bond and a brotherhood amongst themselves. And it all starts with the top, right? And the most important thing, and I think Lem will learn this if he hasn't already, I think he has, and I think his partners have, 
the owner who thinks he's a general manager has a fool for a client, right? You have to have the best. You have Ron Francis and that team, and you let them do their job. You do not come in over the top and second guess. And I think that's been the situation for a lot of teams that have amazing franchises. I won't think about folks in the NFL, but ones come to mind right away, right? Who are literally owner, president, general manager, and haven't right. won a Super Bowl in forever. So the great thing about the Islanders organization is we hired the best, the best available at the time. And we said, guys, here it is. Here's the checkbook. Here's the keys to the kingdom. Go run the team. We are not getting in your way. So when Anders Lee gets hurt, I'm finding out about Anders' status a couple of minutes before the fans do. I'm not in there asking Lou and Barry what's going on with the team and the players. They need to do their job. And as a good owner, you let the folks that you hire do that. And the pieces they put into place did very well those first few games since his absence and kudos to them and your management team. Right, but Anders is still our leader. Anders is there every night. Anders is recovering. He's got a lot of rehab to do. Johnny Boychuk had a, a career-ending injury. He's now yep. on our hockey operations staff. They really have developed this sense of what Matt Martin told me is the tightest locker room he's ever been in. And I think we have a good chance this year to compete. Unlike historically, the Islanders today, every year, we have to feel we can win the Stanley Cup, compete for the Stanley Cup. That's the standard of which Barry and Lou are getting up in the morning to operate. They're not looking to operate a team. Oh, we made the playoffs wonderful, pat ourselves on the back. They want to win another cup. Barry's tasted a cup. Lou's had three of them. They want to drink from that cup again. Sure. I wish you luck in doing so. Len, what do you see for the future of hockey and the growth of the game? Where do you see things going from here? Well, as I said, I, I think it's a lot of really good people who are involved in the game. I think it is the most exciting sport and action doesn't stop. I think television has gotten a lot better at broadcasting it and will continue to get better at it. I think as technology improves and John alluded to some of this, but you'll have multi-screen technology. You'll be able to choose your own angle, for example, on replays. I think a lot of people might disagree with me, but I do think, I think gaming, sports gambling is a big part of the future of all sports. We've all seen what it's done for the NFL, that you can play fantasy football. You're not even rooting for a team necessarily, but you're watching Red Zone and you're rooting for specific players. But more importantly, you're playing against your friends. So you're a participant right. in the sport instead of just watching it. I think that's huge. I think that one of the key things about hockey that needs to happen, and I'm really proud of Todd Lewicki, who has been leading the charge for us for Seattle and the Kraken on this, is diversity. Hockey has a reputation of having been a white male sport, and that needs to change, right? I mean, that's not what America is. And so I think bringing people to the game and starting at a young age and creating a culture where everybody feels welcome and wants to be part of it and can succeed is going to be critical. And Todd has been living and breathing that every single day. And it takes a focused effort and it's happening. And I think that the, the league appreciates it. I think other teams have noticed. I think that it makes us all proud to be part of that organization. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think that that whole diversity thing is also one of the reasons why we need the rink on the East End to create an outlet where we can expose more kids and more people to the game that may not have otherwise been able to have that exposure. So thank you for that. And I think the NHL is doing a good job there, Larry, in terms of hockey is for everyone. And there are inner cities and folks who don't have the economic advantages that a lot of us have enjoyed in life where they can't play hockey because they can't afford the equipment. We're putting that aside. We're making that a non-starter by supplying the equipment and making right. sure that the less advantaged folks who haven't had a chance to play hockey, who would quite frankly be great at it, get a chance to lace them up and learn how to skate. Right. You have to first learn how to skate. Then you have to learn how to play. And I think the fact is that both our respective organizations have very vibrant community departments that are working hard to make sure the community is involved in every aspect of the sport, especially in the youth. Yeah. So, Larry, it doesn't stop. First, we got to build this rink in Riverhead. Right. And then the fundraising doesn't stop when the ring is built. You got to be it's there. It's going to take money to run it. It takes money to run <laughs> it. And it's going to take down. money to bring people to it. Right. You don't want to be a sport that excludes people because they Correct. can't afford the basic equipment that you need to play it. Right. You know, I know this is very important to try to bring this rink and exactly do what you just mentioned and, you know, open this game up to folks that maybe couldn't afford it or maybe wouldn't have experienced it because of the cost. And that's very important to him. And I think that it has a place out east. Listen, I'm one of those crazy hockey parents that I have two boys that are playing. My wife and I are typically in different states on weekends and we're spending a lot of time in the car. And I understand it. I can only imagine if I live 
east of Hopog, where I would end up having to do and be and play. So it's highly needed. And let's not forget about women's hockey. Let's not forget about girls hockey. That's super important, right? We take such pride every four years when the American women's hockey team competes for a gold medal next to hopefully be in Beijing. We need to make sure that, to Len's point, we're thinking about diversity, we're thinking about inclusion, and we're making sure that hockey with a heart, which is one of the mantras we have, hockey with a heart continues. And that's a program we have that other teams are now emulating where they give the scoreboard and they give the concourse over to a charity every game. And so these charities have a chance to get an articulation to the community of what they're trying to solve for, but also they can raise funds. And then we can open the owner's box up for their biggest donors to come and hopefully have a big fundraiser. So again, it goes back to our original theme of a hockey team, a sports team in a metropolitan area is a community asset. It's a community trust. And we're passing through as owners, but hopefully we establish a standard of operation that is emulated and copied from generation to generation. That to me is incredibly important. And let's not lose face and lose sight of the fact in both communities, the job creation that's occurred here as a part of building these two arenas. In UBS Arena, we had 10,000 construction jobs, 3,000 permanent jobs. Over the course of the life of the project, $25 billion in incremental economic activity. And it's sitting in Elmont, which has been an economically disadvantaged community. And we're hiring people from the community. That's super important. 30% of our jobs have to come from within the five-mile radius. And 30% of our construction jobs and our contracts were led to minorities, women, and military veterans, disabled veterans. So again, that's what Len is talking about. The fact that we have this machine that can lead to diversity, lead to inclusion, that's doing good at the same time providing entertainment and recreation for the community. Yeah, I think that that's just like the strategic byproduct, right? The entertainment piece, everything else behind it is really the important stuff behind the community and what you guys are doing through your organizations to promote hockey and promote the community, which is vitally important these days. I'm going to wrap things up here. It's been a pleasure having you both on. But before I do, I haven't mentioned it yet, but this is the Midland Money Mindset. And we ask every guest on our show the same final question. And I'm going to start with you, Len. What did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I woke up this morning, I rubbed my dog's head, kissed my wife, good morning, and then this afternoon I walked out of my home office and I saw my son had actually surprised us by driving in from Philadelphia for for the afternoon. So for me it's about family, right? Every day I feel like I live for my family and to keep smiles on everybody's faces. Awesome. And what about you, John? What did you do today? Well, I mean, to me, the joy of doing this is something that's important because Len has been such an important part of my life. I mentioned it in the beginning, but I think without Len, I wouldn't be on this broadcast. Len was an advisor to me in a critical time of my life, 1994. I literally didn't have uh, two nickels to rub together. And he was there supporting me. I decided to start my business by inexplicably, I had 13 credit cards that I had never used. And I had the credit card checks and I wrote out checks to myself and put them in the bank. And I had the start start capital for my company. And I think if I didn't have Len there as my attorney saying, John, you're going to do this, you're going to be successful. And so every time I see Len and we're on this podcast, but I can see him, it harkens back to the fact that I had a great friend who was there for me today. So it brought me joy to see him. And I think the second thing that Len said, I also echo, which is the ability to go and see my mom, who's 88, heading for the barn, but is hanging on because she wants to see Belmont, be able to share something with a parent that's that great and with family and be able to embrace family, especially during these times, brings me great joy. So thank you, Larry, for having us. Yeah, oh, thank listen, you. That, that is my pleasure. And again, on behalf of myself, on behalf of the Peconic Hockey Foundation, and we'll have all this information in the show notes that if people want to make a donation or learn more and find out why you guys are so passionate about what they're doing and their quest to build this covered rink out east, we'll have all that information for them to find. I thank you so much for being generous with your time and sharing the game of hockey with me, something that I love tremendously. I wish you both the best of luck for the remainder of this season. Well, John, the remainder of this season and Len going into the draft. Right now, and, John, because we're going to get you next year. <laughs> Listen, I'm excited. I've never been to Seattle yet, but because of the Kraken, it is on my list. So I'm looking forward to going. Gonna, like we go, let's go Islanders. Let's go Islanders. 
What do you think the Kraken's going to be? What do you think the cheer is going to be? Have you been thinking about that or working on that? No, no, no. This is we're going to listen to the fans. That's great. The fans are going to tell us what it is. Do you know what's so great about that point, Len, is that in my first season, I faintly heard 30 or 40 fans when we scored say, yes, 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 which was the cheer of a wrestler from the UFC or the WWF, WWE. Was. Yeah, WWE. And that 30-person cheer is now a cheer that every single person at the Coliseum chants when we score a goal. So you're absolutely right. When it comes organically from the fans, it's the best in the world. Yeah, well... It'll stick and they'll stay behind it, right? Exactly. There you go. It's going to be exciting. All right, guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Make it a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. I want to thank John Ledecky and Len Potter for being guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show. John and Len are great stewards of the game of hockey and embody what the game is all about. Each of them understands that the sport is an avenue to serve their respective communities at large. As a member of the Peconic Hockey Foundation Board, we appreciate all of the tremendous support they have provided us in the building of a covered rink in Riverhead. Please join them and support it, too. All of the information needed to support the Peconic Hockey Foundation and to learn more about the New York Islanders, the Seattle Kraken, and their owners can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset make sure you visit our website at midlandfinancial.com and be sure to smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content. And listen, please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. Be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about the mindset needed to successfully plan for and live your best life before and through retirement. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.